the depth of that culture, that the parents are held in such high regard by their children. And then, of course, I grew up where, in school, I didn't see that as a child. And I was very glad to meet that as a young adult. And then when it came time for me to enter into this tradition, I had no trouble bowing to the shrine. I was happy to bow and to incorporate this bowing into my life. But in our society, people who don't practice paying homage, so we, we often find people think that we're worshipping idols, which is a grave sin. We don't bow down to a statue. But actually, we're looking at a photograph of the Buddha in the form of wood. It's a wooden carving to represent. And it doesn't matter. Nobody knows what the Buddha looks like in modern times. They just make it up. But it's a facsimile and just a symbol of what we worship, what we cherish in our hearts, is a teacher, a being, a human, who attained the highest, most exalted state of mind that is possible for us. And this is so important for us to remember. Even when the saws are hacking away and crashing through the sound barrier, if we go back to the seed of awakening within us, that doesn't matter. It's just a sound, it's vibration. Even when our bodies don't work properly, don't function the way we want them, and restrict us, and pain us, and burden us, we still go back to that seed of awakening within us. And we treasure that, we bow to it, how do we bow to the seed of awakening when we can't get down on our hands and knees? Well, we have to give it attention. We don't bow with the body, but we bow with the heart. And bowing with the heart means that in the middle of the most painful moment, if we can remember the qualities of the Buddha, who, even though he came from a privileged life, he still suffered. He was very loved, but he went through trials and tribulations to practice in order to gain that enlightenment, fasting and deep austerities, and realized, of course, that the extremes were not the way realize the middle way is the way. But in his lifetime, he had enemies and people tried to murder him, harm him, defame him, criticize him, abuse him verbally, if not physically, again and again. And he used his wisdom and his mental purity to counter these attacks. He used his equanimity, the calm of his heart, to diffuse 
any of the hatred or enmity that was thrust in his direction. So when we are experiencing the obstacles that human beings experience with a body and an untrained mind, we, we try to reflect on how courageous and how one-pointed the Buddha was in his way of dealing with the ten armies of Mara, every kind of obstacle that might confront him, human or in the mind or the bodily, of course, people not feeding him or feeding too much, criticizing him, people coming with deception to trick him. He was compassionate beyond compare. And if we try to be as compassionate as we can with ourselves, then we can remember that quality, remember it, bring it to life within us. We can remember the quality of fearlessness in the middle of our fear. It's very difficult to do that because when we feel afraid, the mind falls in on itself, doesn't it? If we can find a point in our belly, or in the heart, which is not fearful, then that's something maybe that the training is meant to impart to us. The possibility that in the middle of these critical moments, the tool that we must use is attention to the opposite of what we're experiencing. Just like when we feel cold, we try to warm ourselves up somehow if, if there's no heat available. And so when we feel angry, we try to calm ourselves. We try to bring up a sense of loving kindness. And with fear, it's a similar thing. It's to try to find within us some place of stability, some place of attention to that which we love. Remembering the Buddha is a good way of directing the mind. Fall on our knees, bow mentally, heartfully to the Blessed One with gratitude. A mind that is filled with gratitude is generous, is present, is full, is strong, and it's a power that can face fear. So at the same time, the mind cannot hold gratitude and fear. This is something we can experiment with. It cannot easily hold fear and compassion. Because compassion is very broad. It's uh, arms open to the present moment. It's welcoming. It's soft and tender, and it gives space, whereas fear is tight, contracted, and it, it's a closed fist. The situation upends us. Whether it's something happening within us, we frighten ourselves, or someone else is frightening us, a situation is worrying us, then bringing in those other qualities that seem far away, we only have to look within it at that seed of awakening and wake up to its possibility.
Oh, knowing, mindfully understanding and seeing, I'm afraid here, I, I can't deal with this. But if we are constantly reflecting on the powers of the Buddha's awakening, then we can wake up to another quality in that moment and bring it in, invite it, welcome it. And pairing those two together, we find the middle way. Because compassion is on one side of purity of mind, and fear is on the other side of impurity of mind. But when you have two qualities like that and you bring them together in your heart, you're standing in the middle. And the middle way can stand for truth instead of falling, catapulting in the direction of weakness and giving up. Fear causes us to give up, to be disheartened, to be overcome, overwhelmed. Here in the monastery, um, living in a very vulnerable way, I found that the path requires a lot of creativity. And when we don't have what we need, it's amazing what you can create out of nothing. And in terms of projects, we want to fix something well, we might not have the ingredients, but we start looking around and suddenly out of a little piece of plastic and a little piece of rubber, a few rocks and a broken cup, you don't know what you can make out of that. But we have done that. The ways that we meet obstacles in life, we have to be very creative. Certainly with sickness, with dysfunction, with hostility from the world or from within the mind. We have to find creative ways to disarm it. Because if it, it cannot be disarmed, then it's going to defeat us. And we want to be able to stand for truth, stand for what the Buddha teaches us, train the mind. It's not just automatic. We don't just sit there while we're meditating and let the mind do what it wants because it'll be out the window, traveling in who knows where, <laughs> maybe completely lost off track or asleep. But the middle way is a creative way and the seed of awakening is there within us. So we have to trust that and make the best of it. And we, we don't have a lot of time. If you're young, you think you have a lot of time, but you don't. And the world is crashing in on us. We don't know what we have. And even if it isn't, the body is crashing in on us. We don't know what we have. A few days ago, I was on the phone with a friend. And she was on her deathbed in the hospital with her family members sitting around her. And she wanted to hear a chant, so I chanted for her. And then at the end she said, can I find that on your website? And I said, you don't have time to look on a website, you're gonna die. So just remember it now and let it go. But she wanted to hold on to the chanting. 
It's interesting how at the very end you may be happy and peaceful and loving, but the mind is still holding on, holding on. Time and again, even that last moment, if we can let go, really practice letting go, letting go, letting go, that's the training, is to give us the opportunity not to crave things that we can't have, that aren't there for us, but to treasure what we do have. And certainly if you have a loving thought in your mind or a peaceful heart, we must not get distracted but keep treasuring what we do have. So that brings up the quality of contentment. And even if what we do have isn't enough, make it enough. Be content with that. Because the basis for all of this is that kind of contentment and what can we artistically, creatively draw out of that. Just like the most weak, feeble-looking little seed, if you plant it, it can grow into this gigantic tree. How does that happen? And so from this seemingly minor state of mind like contentment, we can grow the seed of awakening because out of contentment comes gratitude, out of gratitude comes generosity, out of generosity comes the ability to pay attention to the present moment. Out of that paying attention to the present moment comes awareness of the truth of the way things are. When we're aware of the truth of the way things are, we have more fearlessness and we're able to stand up for truth. That's the power of training the mind. And it's an all-day, 24-7 project, not just when we're here together. But being together is so important. Because alone, you know the old saying, Joy shared is a joy doubled, and a sorrow shared is a sorrow halved. So when we are feeling heavy and burdened, just talking to a, a friend, a dear friend, a trustworthy friend, can take that sting of pain away. And that's love. And love really is the essence of this practice, of this life, of this awakening. We're all caught in different degrees of delusion and that's our biggest obstacle, biggest enemy is delusion. So the whole reason for our being born is ignorance. Being ignorant, going from ignorance to wisdom spiritually, as spiritual beings on a human journey. We go from ignorance to, hopefully, to wisdom, or, or greater and greater levels of knowing there is something better than ignorance. So it's greed, hatred, and delusion. But greed and hatred are embedded in delusion. It's because we're deluded that we have greed, and because we're deluded we have hatred. <laughs> The more, the, 
our ability to have clarity of mind develops, the more we can be aware of our greed or ill will. But delusion is the hardest to be aware of when you're deluded. But if we practice seeing more clearly, it sometimes can sharpen our ability to know, oh, this is just pure delusion. And the thinking mind cannot really wake up. We don't wake up by thinking. The waking up is an intuitive process, and it cuts through the belly of delusion. It just punctures it, blows it up. So when we develop that intuitive knowledge, intuitive perception, that's the IP, is intuitive perception. Your internet provider, the provider of awakening is your intuitive perception. So how do I tell the difference between delusion and intuitive perception? Well, you can check in with your belly. So delusion would be a knowing or a, a believing that you know based on belief, based on thought. But when you go deeply into the silence of the present moment, sometimes a certain insight will trickle up into consciousness. And it's not something that you figured out, but something that revealed itself to you about yourself or about a situation. And you could probably trust that more than your belief or your viewpoint, your opinion about the situation. And at a time of crisis, sometimes our whole belief structure collapses and we intuitively realize, I'm going to die right now. I had a near-death experience more than once. And it's like the whole world suddenly is meaningless. It has no meaning. And the only thing that's important is your awareness of what's happening. And then your whole life suddenly flows past you and you, you feel either awestruck or grateful or what next or a little bit of waking up. The world is shattered and what's real? One breath is real. So you're in the moment like never before. That you can trust. And then when you come back into normal life, then you, you have to put all the pieces back together again, but they never fit together the same way. It's different. They're somehow skewed. So you no longer believe all the signs and all the signage of the world doesn't make sense. Buy me, do this. Go here, have more. It doesn't make sense anymore. Because you've, you've faced a reality that you haven't looked at before. It's not what is sold in a shop or manufactured and advertised and billeted as the pot of gold that we should all have, the lottery, the winning ticket.
You're in the moment like never before. 